You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, my name is Dr. John DeYard and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And in today's podcast, I want to talk about the science and the wisdom of pranayama, the Ayurvedic breathing techniques that have been around for thousands of years that have an incredible amount of modern science to back them up. How they knew what they knew thousands of years ago. And to see only today us beginning to understand what's really going on with how we breathe and the benefits of breathing correctly and the detriment of breathing incorrectly is just profound. And I've written so many articles, at least 20 articles about breathing and pranayama and different breathing techniques with videos of how to do it. And I feel like there's a lot of information that's sort of out there. And I wanted to pull it all together in this podcast so you can understand why breathing is so important, why pranayama exercises are so critical, and the profundity of what would happen to you when you do these techniques and the benefits that you're gonna receive are just phenomenal. So first we gotta understand why they created it in the first place. Because we're unconscious, that's the point. Vedic science, anything Ayurveda, Vedic science means truth. Truth never changes. It has to do with freeing us from old emotional, mental, emotional traumas, pain, and free us from letting who we truly are out. So, so what does that mean? 95% of the things we think and say and do according to a bunch of studies um, are stem from impressions that we experienced in the first five or six years of life. Emotional traumas, things we endured as a child, we created an emotional personality to endure and morph ourselves into a personality, survive that. Some of us became, you know, pleasers. Some of us became control freaks. You know, you know, some of us became rebellious. We all created our own version of a personality, and we carried that into our adult life. And studies show that 95% of the stuff we think and say and do as adults come from unconscious impressions from early on. That, from the Vedic perspective, was unsustainable. It wasn't allowing us to really expand our awareness, our consciousness, and become who we truly are in this world. Because we're doing impressions and we're reacting to situations based on stuff that happened many, many years ago. So rites of passage, traditional techniques were used for thousands of years to help people stop needing to be loved and approved and appreciated by parents and everyone else, and feeling strong enough in yourself to be the love, to be the man or the woman that you can be. And that's kind of what Ayurveda is about. But it wasn't just about, you know, not having emotional, you know, protective patterns that, that mold your thinking and behavior as an adult. It was also about raising your level of self-awareness and raising your vibration so you can experience the most subtle things in our universe, in our world. And this gets a little weird, but in Ayurvedic medicine, you know, the most subtle things are the most profound. They talked about the microbiome thousands of years ago. You couldn't see it. Now we know the microbiome controls everything, even your thoughts and desires and cravings. But we can't see them. Well, Ayurveda talked about them as crimi, and they talked about the, the, the invisible, invisible bugs in our gut and how important they were. You know, I've written so many articles about ancient wisdom and modern science, and, and, and every time I turn around, the more subtle the thing is, the more powerful it is. Meditation has been shown to increase the length of your telomeres which is, a, which is a, a, a longevity technique that won the Nobel Prize, understanding the benefit and the length of the telomeres by Elizabeth Blackbird. When you meditate, you close your eyes, you do nothing but what's happening at a subtle level. 
pranayama breathing techniques are the same. So let's talk about how we become unconscious and how to become conscious using these breathing techniques. That's our plan, right? Okay. So, so in Ayurvedic medicine, they talk about uh, impressions that we feel, traumas, emotions in our heart, and that's called sadaka pitta. That means the heart. We carry those impressions to our brain through vata, an aspect of vata called pranavata. And it's said that those impressions are written into the white matter of your brain, deep inside your brain. The myelin sheets, which are very waxy, it's sort of written like trauma right into the white matter of your brain. So if you walked into a cave when you were a young kid and a bear came out and chased you, you're never ever going to forget that. So we record those impressions for our survival. That's why they're there. And, and that's why we have a hard time letting them go. But a lot of those impressions aren't working for us. They helped us as a young kid never go back to that cave again. But as an adult, oftentimes, you know, oftentimes we don't need those old protective patterns any longer. They served us once, but they don't serve us any longer as adults because we can, we, we can let some of those old protective patterns go. And that's what Ayurveda was really all about, was freeing ourselves from those old emotional traumas, freeing us from the emotional armor that keeps us doing the same dumb stuff again and again and again. So these impressions are written into the white matter of the brain. That's called tarpaka. Tarpaka means to record. So they're literally recorded in the white matter of the brain. Tarpaka also means the, the, the cerebral spinal fluid that washes those impressions and gets rid of the the ones that, that, that can be um, let go of. So the tarpaka kapha uh, is part of the brain, cerebral spinal brainwashing fluid that washes through the glymphatic system that drains waste out through the paranasal sinuses into our nose, into our lymphatic system and out of our body. This is a well-documented scientific understanding that Ayurvedic medicine knew about thousands of years ago, and I'll explain that why in a minute. But so, so we have this, this mechanism of holding on to impressions in our brain, in the white matter of our brain, that Ayurveda was like, we can rewrite that. We can erase those impressions. In Western medicine, we call it neuroplasticity. So it turns out that a lot of these breathing techniques and ancient Ayurvedic techniques were all about boosting neuroplasticity, which is like crazy. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about, is how we can really use these Ayurvedic breathing techniques to, to, to increase the cerebral spinal brainwashing fluid through the glymphatic system that drains three pounds of toxic plaque and chemicals out of your brain every year while you sleep at night. And most people don't have a great glymphatic drainage system, which is now based on recent studies been linked to a whole bunch of ill health concerns, including anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, uh, infection, inflammation, and even autoimmune concerns, where the master computer, because it's trash can't be wasted, gotten rid of through the lymphatic system, doesn't know how many fire trucks to send to the fire on Main Street, so it sends one or a hundred, and it can create an overzealous immune reaction. In fact, studies have recently, one published study just came out showing that, that post-viral you know, uh, conditions from COVID, the people after, get, after they get COVID, they have a whole bunch of conditions that don't go away very quickly, have now been linked in one study to congestion of the brain glymphatic system. So this is something, something Ayurveda talked about thousands of years ago that is critical for getting rid of old emotional trauma. That's exactly what the science found. Now, that was only discovered, the lymph system in the brain only 
10 years ago at the University of Virginia. But now, so much research is being done on this system because it's the brain drain. It's the one that actually cleans out your brain, supports mental clarity, focus, and higher states of consciousness, higher states of awareness, so you can become aware of those so, so subtle things, like your microbiome and things that, that Ayurveda talked about that, that are so subtle that, you know, that, that um, if I talked about some of the subtle things of Ayurveda that I'm reading about today, it'll be like crazy, crazy, crazy talk. And um, so we're going to stick to the science and, uh, and I will be writing more and more about the subtle things as I tie the science together. But stay tuned for that information because it's nothing short of phenomenal. Um, but I promise you, the, most subtle it, the more subtle it is, the more powerful. It's, it's crazy. It's like shooting a bow and arrow. Like the more that if you hold the arrow and you pull it back and you hold it really still and you, it, you know, any little movement here, the tiniest little movement is going to have an exponential effect at the level of the target, right? So you can see how the subtle movement can affect a massive change. And that's how it works in the body from the Ayurvedic perspective. The most subtle the things, the more powerful. And, and I've written articles about, I'll give you a little hint, like biophotons or photons, they're particles and waveforms at the same time. And they're information particles, they're called biophotons, they carry information in our body. And, um, and uh, they've been shown to be altered by intention. And in other words, that these very, very subtle things can be manipulated by our intention, which is now in new studies. Go to my website at lifespot.com, type in biophotons, and read the profound research on how subtle the impact of these, these biophotons are at such a subtle level, but have such a profound effect on our body physiologically. Pretty crazy. So that's just one little hint. Your microbiome is another, and, and, and it just goes on and on, and it's super exciting to, to be able to write about um, this science, which just never ceases to amaze me in terms of the profundity. Okay, so how do we get rid of these old impressions of the brain? Well, I think first we need to think Tarpaka Kapha is the brain lymphatics. How do we clean out the brain lymphatics? Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but I do want to say that, um, that I've written so many articles on the brain lymphatic system, the glymphatic system. And all you got to do is type in brain lymphatics and you can get more detailed into that. In fact, I have a free ebook called The Miracle of Lymph. So for 100 scientific references, you can read all about the lymphatic system and get caught up on the profundity of the lymph. In Ayurvedic medicine, the lymph system means rasa. And the study of rasa is called rasayana. And the study of Rasayana is one of the eight branches of Ayurveda, specifically for, particularly for longevity. So it's literally the study of your lymphatic system is the study of longevity. And the lymphs in the brain are sort of critical to that. There's also lymphs around your belly. There's lymphs underneath your skin. And in a lot of ways, that's why I wrote the book Eat Wheat, because when people don't digest well, a lot of folks don't, and you eat a hard to digest food like wheat, and you don't break it down properly, the proteins and the undigestible fats we eat, they're too big to get into your blood, so they go into your lymph as the garbage can, they clog up your lymph, and now they clog up the ability for your lymph to drain waste out of your body, and you get brain lymph congestion that's linked to, like I said before, anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, and autoimmune concerns, right? So it's a lot of stuff that can happen when you allow your digestion to become weak, 
which sets you up for undigested food to go into your lymph, clog it up, and then cause problems. Sedentary lifestyle, lack of movement, all are, are, affect your lymphatic system dramatically, and so does poor sleep. Bad sleep means bad brain lymphatic drainage. Bad lymphatic drainage from poor digestion means poor sleep. It just works bi-directional. It's the way it works. <clears throat> so in Ayurvedic medicine, like I said, the lymphs in the brain, and most of them go across the top of the head like the sagittal sinus, um, they drain into the perinasal sinuses. And Ayurveda knew, figured out a long time ago that happens, and they developed therapies called nausea, where you use nausea oils into the sinuses where you drain the uh, perinasal sinuses. And uh, I wrote an article called uh, uh, Nausea, Sinus Cleansing and Emotional Baggage, which I highly recommend that you read about and know about because it's a technique that is designed specifically to clean out the brain lymphatics. Um, <clears throat> and I've used, I administered Ayurvedic detox therapies called Panchakarma for 26 years. And I gotta tell you, that was the number one treatment that I would use to crack the emotional egg to crack the emotional armor that we hold on to for dear life. So many of us are holding on to these old protective patterns of behavior. We don't know how to let go of them. And Ayurveda was like, you gotta <clears throat> clean them out up here in the sagittal sinus. This was an old understanding of Tarpaka Kapha. Tarpaka Kapha was holding on to emotional Kapha. Kapha is heavy and it has to do with holding on to those old emotional impressions because we think we need them <clears throat> for our survival which we don't, but we think we do. All right, so please read that article, and I think that would be a really great way to go. Studies have shown that head massage will increase the lymphatics underneath the skull as well, which is very, very important. Um, and I've talked a lot about that technique, and I'm not gonna dive into that. I wanna spend most of my time today talking about um, some of the breathing techniques, but in addition to um, head massage, any type of yoga with breathing is going to increase your cerebral spinal fluid, which is going to increase your, your brain washing fluid into your, into your sinuses. Um, nose breathing is incredibly valuable for that. And sleeping, particularly sleeping on your side, increases the drainage of the brain lymphs by 75%. Lying on your back, in a way, actually shuts down the brain lymphatics. So you don't want to do that. You want to be sleeping on your side, which is also um, very, very important. There are also herbs that support the brain lymphatic drainage, herbs like mangista. Um, there's an herb that we use called lymph vein, which is from the orange peel called diosmin. And when I was in India studying Ayurveda, we used to grind orange peels and mango peels and grinds the pith, the white, and dry it and make a, a formula for heart circulation. And now we have patented products studied, well studied, that show that the, the extracts of the orange pith are used for microcirculation and lymphatic drainage, which are really important. Uh, other herbs like uh, Brahmi, Chantella Asiatica, <clears throat> a powerful herb for the microcirculation of the brain and mood stability. Great herb for sleep, so it's a great herb to take before you go to bed to help the brain's limbs begin to drain. And again, again, I've written a lot of articles on different techniques <clears throat> to get the brains to move, the brain lymphatics to move as well. Um, fish oils have been shown to be, <clears throat> excuse me, a powerful technique to get the brain lymphatics to move as well, or a powerful herb or supplement to do as well. So making sure you're getting really high quality fish oils 
uh, you know, some really interesting science about the oil and the lymphatics. Remember, the lymph system, it drains the fats off your intestinal tract um, so it's, and the proteins. So it's full. Uh, it really depends on really good lubrication and hydration. And um, so um, good quality fats are critical, particularly in light of the fats that we eat in America today, which are highly processed, bleached, boiled, deodorized uh, vegetable oils, which are rendered so sterilized and so purified that no microbe would ever eat them. And bugs in your gut eat oil. That's what they eat. Sebum that we produce on your skin is a food for the bugs on our skin. And, and we've purified these to such an extent that our bugs won't eat them. And if your bugs won't eat them, where do all those bad oils go? Well, they go into your lymph, eventually your liver. They clog up your liver. <clears throat> they cause something called bile sludge, which affects your gallbladder um, and to be able to function optimally. And it's a, there's a good reason why that's the number one abdominal surgery in America today, elective abdominal surgery in America today, which is gallbladder removal surgery. So, so it, it all sort of ties together when you begin to understand how all this works. So those are some of the techniques that are really important for your lymph. And of course, exercise and nose breathing exercise, which was the research I did in my first book, Body, Mind, and Sport, <clears throat> where when you breathe through your nose, the brain waves go into a coherent pattern. They go into a meditative alpha state. And when you breathe through your mouth, your brain goes into an incoherent pattern and a beta stressed out state. So we proved that when you breathe through your nose during exercise, you go into a calm state. In fact, we measured the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic nervous system. And when you breathe through your nose, when you exercise, the, the sympathetic nervous system dials down 50% and the parasympathetic goes up 50%. So instead of having in normal exercise, the fight or flight goes 100% and your calm parasympathetic goes zeros out, the two nervous systems literally coexisted. This is a really cool concept because coexistence of opposite nervous systems means that I'm dynamically active and calm at the same time. And we proved that, which is pretty cool. We published it in the International Journal of Neuroscience. Uh, it's been proven. It's well established that when you breathe through your nose, crazy, major, amazing things happen. We're going to talk more about that here in a minute. Um, so, so, um, so when you go for a walk or when you exercise, really valuable for you to start breathing properly, breathing deeply in through your nose and deeply out through your nose. The first technique I'm going to teach you to increase brainwashing Tarpakafa fluid removal in the beginning of neuroplasticity is breathing slowly. Um, studies show that when you breathe at six breaths per minute, that the, um, the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, the nervous system, and brain function and endocrine system are all dramatically supported and improved just six breaths per minute. The average person breathes around 18 and 19, 20 breaths per minute. So we have to learn to slow our breath rate down some. So here's your first exercise technique. Go for a walk, breathe into your nose and out through your nose. Count how many steps you take on the in-breath. One, two, three, four on the in. One, two, three, four on the out. You keep trying to extend that till you get at least a five-second inhale and a five-second exhale. Now, and then, and then the goal, though, is to establish such a respiratory level of efficiency that you can breathe at five seconds in, five seconds out, 10 breaths per minute, um, or six breaths per minute, 10 seconds total, 
on at all times during your day without even thinking about it. So that's going to happen by practicing pranayama breathing techniques and becoming a better breather, right? That's where that's going to happen, and that's why it's going to have, that has to happen. So the first technique is starting to learn how to slow down and lengthen your breath, okay? So there's a thing that we call over-breathing, sort of a version of hyperventilation. Um, and when you over, when we sit around and we just breathe little shallow breaths in, 18, 20 breaths per minute, we're breathing in fast and breathing out fast. And what happens is we keep breathing in more oxygen and blowing off the CO2. So what happens is our oxygen levels go up and our CO2 levels go down. This has been well documented in many, many, many studies. And oxygen is an excitator, and CO2 is a sedation agent. Literally, CO2 is a tranquilizer for your nervous system. And I'd venture to say that most of us feel like we have been overstimulated in our culture. And part of that is because we breathe in such a way that we keep pumping in way more oxygen, and we keep breathing out, because we breathe fast, all the CO2. And we've lost the ability to create what's called CO2 tolerance. CO2 tolerance is our ability to handle more CO2 without encouraging you know, the, the urgency to breathe again. And, and why is that important to have more CO2? Well, the, 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 the trigger for getting the oxygen, which is hooked to your hemoglobin molecule in your blood, to be released and, and oxygenate your tissues and feed them with oxygen, which we all know they need, is higher levels of CO2. So a lot of us walk around with low levels of CO2, the oxygen locked to the hemoglobin molecule, and unless we have CO2 levels that rise significantly, we never fully dump all the oxygen off the hemoglobin into our tissues. And when all that oxygen gets dumped off the hemoglobin because of high levels of CO2, then the CO2 waste can be attached to the hemoglobin and taken out and breathed out as waste, as a powerful waste removal um, kind of mechanism for our body. So does that make sense? So when you're, when you're breathing really shallow little breaths 20 times a day, you're over-breathing oxygen, you're hyperventilating in a way, and you're breathing out all your CO2, and that creates an excited state, an anxiety state, which is why they call it hyperventilation. People are anxious and worried and panicking. So what do you do? You put a paper bag over your mouth and you breathe in the CO2 back and you amp up your CO2 levels, which is a nervous system tranquilizer, a sedative for your nervous system so it calms you down. So it's, it's easy to say with lots of science to back it up that the reason why many of us are so anxious and worried and frenetic around going all, all the time is because we don't have enough CO2. We don't carry enough because we're constantly over breathing. So that's why practicing to slow your breath down, you know, one, two steps, three steps, five steps, 10 steps for the in-breath, one, two, three, four, five, 10 steps for the out-breath, and learning while you're going for your walk and your hikes to really extend that breath. And do it through your nose and make your nose very quiet. Old Buddhist monks would say that you would breathe through your nose and the hairs of your nose would never ever move. That's gonna be your first exercise, which is really important. And studies show, that when you breathe at six breaths per minute, five seconds on the in, five seconds on the out, that there's chemoreceptors in your brain and your lungs that do not respond to the higher levels of CO2 to create an urgency for the next breath, which means that breath rate allows you, allows you 
to increase your CO2 levels and build CO2 tolerance. This is huge information. So just breathing at six breaths per minute allows you to breathe, breathe uh, more, allow more CO2 to linger, which is gonna be the trigger to dump all the oxygen off the hemoglobin into your tissues and hyperoxygenate your body, right? When you get an oximeter and you put it on your finger, it says 98%, 97%, that's what's in your blood. That's how much oxygen is hooked to your blood. That's not how much oxygen in your tissues feeding your cells. And that amount of oxygen in your cells depends on how much CO2 you're tolerant to. This is really, really important stuff. And this is what pranayama breathing techniques were really all about. Step one in pranayama was to learn how to breathe slowly and calmly. And many, you know, and, and, and learning how to breathe at six breaths per minute. But even in your pranayama practice, you can learn how to breathe comfortably at three or four breaths per minute, one or two breaths per minute. Imagine, which is really very easy if you practice it, starting to breathe at one breath every 60 seconds and be comfortable with that. It's pretty cool. And, and training yourself kindly and gently and comfortably with never any strain allows you to, at rest or in activity, maintain an average of six breaths per minute throughout the day. There's a great book called, called Breath by James Nestor, who I'm actually having him on uh, my podcast here in, in, in short order. Um, and he wrote a book on breath and did research on nose breathing, which was, of course, my first fascination, my first book, Body, Mind, and Sport. And um, he talked about how the six breath per minute thing was the same rhythm of breathing that, would, that Buddhists used to use when they would use prayer beads or the rosary. When you pray over these rosaries, the studies show that you're, that forces you into a breath rate of about six breaths per minute. Pretty interesting, pretty phenomenal stuff. Okay, um, so another uh, breathing technique for you to do, of course, read all my articles on nose breathing exercise. I've got many techniques and strategies to do that. So. I'm gonna leave that alone because I've written so much on it, so I'm not gonna talk about that today. But my, my, my next favorite um, exercise um, would be um, the ujjayi breathing, uh, where you create a constriction in the back of your throat and you create sort of an ocean breath where it sounds something like this. So, and that's a really great breath to learn how to breathe slow and easy. In fact, in my book, Body, Mind, Sport, I encourage people to use the ujjayi breath during the exhalation, even during vigorous exercise, because that creates and engages your abdominal muscles. So if you were to make that ujjayi sound and squeeze all the air out, you would absolutely feel your tummy muscles contracting to do the final squeeze of the air out. And when your stomach muscles, your abdominal muscles, which are the secondary muscles of breathing, contract, they create an abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage that triggers a vagal response on your heart that triggers a calm parasympathetic vagus response that tells your brain to go into an alpha state, tells your parasympathetic level to rise even though you're under stress. It tells your body that the war is over even though I'm engaged in dynamic activity. In my book, Body, Mind, Support, what I was really searching for was the runner's high. I wanted to prove that nose breathing can support that runner's high. My best race is my easiest race experience. It's something that as a triathlete, I was so fascinated by uh, that I wanted to replicate. And we did replicate that. 
we published that study that when the when the fight or flight nervous system goes to goes to um, when 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 normal exercise goes to zero and parasympathetic goes up 100%, and in our study the two equaled out, you had the two opposite nervous systems coexisting. That is the runner's high: dynamic activity and calm. We also proved the brain waves went into coherence, which means the brain was chilling out like a meditation, and the brain waves changed to alpha from beta, which meant it went into a calm, meditative calm during vigorous exercise. Really cool stuff. All happened just because we shut our mouth, okay, which is really, really important. So use the ujjayi breath before you go to bed at night. Practice this breathing. One, two, three, four on the in. One, two, three, four on the out. One, two, three, four on the in. One, two, three, four on the out. And practice lengthening your breath. If it's comfortable, lengthen it longer. Keep practicing lengthening your breath longer and longer and longer. That's a very calming breath, <clears throat> and it can help you um, get yourself to sleep at night. So now, if you go to the <clears throat> original Ayurvedic yoga textbooks, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, you'll see that they talk about pranayama breathing techniques. And they talk about something called kumbhak, which is breath retention. And they say, they go as far to say that Pranayam is not pranayam unless it has kumbhak or breath retention. So breathing without having a breath hold from the original textbooks is not pranayam. So the benefits don't really come unless you have that benefit. But they also clearly always say you have to start learning how to breathe slow first. You have to have some level of respiratory efficiency, CO2 tolerance before that can happen. Right, so so that's a very very important piece of the puzzle, and, and one of my favorite ways to help you get CO2 tolerance is to breathe through your nose at night, and the only way you're going to know for sure if you breathe through your nose at night is yes to tape your mouth shut. Um, something that I've written about a couple of years ago. I tape my mouth every night. You become better and better and better at it, and what happens when you tape your mouth is you force yourself to breathe through your nose. When you breathe through your nose, you produce nitric oxide. So if you're breathing through your nose with your mouth closed all night long, you have eight hours of solid Nobel Prize winning panacea molecule nitric oxide all throughout the night. That's pretty hard to beat. You open your mouth and you snore, you produce zero nitric oxide. In addition, when you breathe through your mouth at night or nose at night, your tongue gets stuck to the soft palate. And what happens when you have your tongue stuck to the soft palate is it spreads your, your soft, your palate and opens it and makes it wider. And what happens when you breathe through your mouth, a study showed where, you, where chimpanzees, they would plug up their noses, and in short order, by not having them breathe through the nose, their, their, their palate started to kind of, kind of, their soft palate was like this inside your mouth, started to collapse, and their face became more narrow and longer, and started having breathing difficulties, because when that happens, the airway clogs up, and then it becomes smaller. It becomes more difficult to breathe. So people have to go into the, the CPR technique. They have to breathe with their mouth open and they have to, and they snore and they're doing all kinds of things, sleep apnea to get the air that they need to sleep because we've lost the ability to breathe properly. When I wrote the article mouth taping, we, 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 we found that the, it was the number one unsubscribe amount of people unsubscribed from my newsletter because they thought he's completely lost his mind. Now we have to tape our mouth closed at night. Oh my God, this is crazy. You read the science, though, 
and uh, and read this book Breath that I'm going to be interviewing with James Nestor, and there's more about that. And uh, when I was in India doing my research on nose breathing for Ayurvedic exercise, I found study after study that infantry groups that were nose breathers um, had less colds than people within the infantry groups that were mouth breathers. You see, it was traditional in India. And traditional, what I'm finding indigenously around the world, that moms and dads would teach their kids to tuck their mouth and never let them learn how to open up their mouth and become mouth breathers. And the more you become a mouth breather as a kid, the jaw doesn't develop. It's just like the monkeys. Your mouth is open, you're not breathing through your nose. The, the, the face becomes thinner and more narrow and longer, and there's no room for the teeth, so the dentists pull out your teeth. It's like a whole thing. But for now, because when you breathe through your nose, you create a little bit of resistance you build CO2 tolerance, and CO2 tolerance is what's going to make sure that you're oxidating your tissues the way you were designed so you stay healthy and live long in a very healthy way. Um, and that's one of the simplest ways to build CO2 tolerance is just shut your mouth at night and put a piece of tape on there. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't snore and I breathe through my, my nose all night long. You don't really know because you're asleep. So the only way to do it is take a little piece of tape and put it across your mouth shut your mouth and see if that tape's gone in the morning and then you'll then you'll know um, what's happening okay so those are some techniques to help you get the co2 tolerance you need then we're going to move into something i want to talk about is kumbak kumbak is breath retention breath retention in western medicine um, has been uh, uh, called intermittent hypoxia intermittent hypoxia is a technique that, uh, high, that, that was kind of understood and studied from high altitude training and some of the benefits of high altitude training. And, and they found that just sort of like a, a little bit of calorie, calorie restriction where you don't eat as much as we do in America, creates you know, autophagy and stem cell activation and all these amazing repair uh, utility vehicles come onto the site and do repair and rebuild and support you. Eat a little less, starve a little, not a lot, just a little, make get the body into repair mode. Breathe a little less, get used to a little bit of air hunger, and all of a sudden intermittent hypoxia starts to kick in and the benefits are nothing short of miraculous. I've written articles on intermittent hypoxia, type that into my website. We'll link all the cool articles to this podcast. And studies show that, that when you have when you do intermittent hypoxia, which comes naturally when you do Ayurvedic breathing techniques called kumbak or breath retention. I'll talk more about that in a minute, how to do that in a minute. But they found that when you do intermittent hypoxia, it increases stem cell activation all over your body, uh, neuronal stem cells in your brain, stem cells in your body. So whenever you have a lack of, of oxygen, um, you're going to be dumping all the oxygen from your hemoglobin into your cells. And that urgency to breathe sends some genetic repair mode into action and all of a sudden your body's producing a massive significant increase of stem cells. Um, EPO, ethropoietin, which Lance Armstrong, a hormone that Lance Armstrong got busted for and to win the Tour de France a bunch of times, um, turns out that you make that all by yourself by practicing intermittent hypoxia or pranayama with kumbak or breath retention. Pretty crazy science. You gotta read the science and the articles I write about this that are just so compelling. In addition to that, there's uh, nitric oxide, the Nobel Prize winning molecule you produce when you breathe through your nose, is produced when you go into intermittent hypoxia in a significant manner. Again, you take away a little bit of the air, 
a little bit of air hunger, a little bit of increased CO2, all the emergency vehicles that do the repair are on site. It's a pretty cool thing. Um, a transcription factor called uh, uh, P53 or the guardian of the genome, which protects our genes from genetic, from oxidation or, or from, from damage or mutation, um, has been shown to be increased by practicing intermittent hypoxia, which is powerful. Uh, vasal endothelial growth factors that protect the lining of your, of your arterial walls, which are so critical for longevity, are increased by intermittent hypoxia. Studies show that, that intermittent hypoxia supports healthy and lower blood sugar issues. And you can do this yourself, and I've practiced it with my patients and myself. I take my blood sugar every morning, and uh, if I do a, the breathing techniques before I go to bed at night, I'm going to have a significantly lower blood sugar number in the morning, no matter what I ate. It's just, you know, unbelievable. And, and when you begin to see these things happen to yourself, you know, you're just like, my gosh, this is so critical. But the cool part about um, intermittent hypoxia that I haven't really written about yet, and this is the first time I was talking about this science, is that the studies show that inter intermittent hypoxia supports neuroplasticity. Remember we talked about in the beginning how the emotional traumas are written into the white matter of your brain, which is like the waxy sheath of the brain to record so you never go into that cave again? Well, intermittent hypoxia has been shown to boost neuroplasticity in a significant way. And that's what we're looking for in the science. Things that boost neuroplasticity are ways that we can rewrite the old emotional oppressions, erase the old and rewrite with new that are conscious as opposed to unconscious, if you get what I'm talking about. So studies show that intermittent hypoxia increases brain development, increases brain um, growth factors, brain-derived neurotropic factors. Uh, there are herbs that are brain-derived neurotropic factors that you should know about because this is also part of the plan to increase your your, your rewrite those old impressions is to take enough of the brain-derived neurotropic factors. And there's four that have been well-documented. One of them is fish oil, and the other three are Ayurvedic herbs. Bacopa, which is an herb that's been shown to uh, outperform and match the effectiveness of Prozac for mood stability and mood and focus and energy and clarity of mind. Um, great for kids with ADT, ADD, attention deficit issues. Um, Ashwagandha, maybe the most power, most well-studied adaptogen on the world for energy, endurance, stamina, rebuild, rejuvenation, um, and turmeric. Uh, and and uh, turmeric is a, a powerful rejuvenative tonic. People don't think about it for brain chemistry, but it's been shown uh, once again to actually outperform many uh, anti-anxiety, anti-depressant agents in studies after, that, have been, that I've written about on my website about turmeric. Turmeric is really important to take it with a little bit of black pepper. The old original formula, Ayurvedic formula, was 16 parts black pepper, uh, um, sorry, 16 parts turmeric and one part black pepper. You put that together, you get 2,000% increase of absorption of just taking the turmeric you know, by itself. And because turmeric was so hard to absorb, because it, you know, if you can increase it by 2,000%, it must have been pretty hard to absorb otherwise, you know, Indians would cook it with curries and do all these things to make it absorb. Turns out it's about 16 to 1 that when you make the curry, so you get that blast of turmeric into your system, which is really important. But in us in the West, we said, oh, that's not good enough. Let's take out the curcumin and let's take the, the extract of the, the, uh, uh, of the black pepper and the extract of the turmeric and put it together and create a curcumin extracted 
super turmeric compound, which is curcumin is just one of the 300 constituents in turmeric. And here we go again, taking nature and trying to piece, take it apart, make it better, and give it to us as a drug. And studies show that turmeric at, at normally at the right dose will actually increase stem cell activation, but a higher dose in these concentrated forms will actually stop and reverse stem cell activation and become toxic. So these become, in my opinion, very powerful medicines that can have very powerful medicinal effects for a medicinal purpose. But if you're gonna take it as a food for everything all the time, take turmeric, 16 parts, uh, turmeric, one part, black pepper. And that's our turmeric plus product. But you can make it yourself at home, spice your food with it. It's just the way to go, is stay as close to nature as possible because you get in trouble when you start taking extracts of herbs and concentrating them and making them into something that nature never knew about. The uh, intermittent hypoxia, the Kumbach breath retention also increases brain DNA concentration. So it increases the concentrations of DNA in your brain, increases neurogenesis, which is neuro, uh, uh, nerve generation, which is also part of the brain-derived neurotropic factor activity. It increases synaptic neuroplasticity, which is what we're talking about here, to erase and rewrite old patterns of the brain. When you have plasticity, you can make new pathways. You can think new thoughts, create new behavioral patterns that are free from old unconscious impressions. And of course, it's been shown to be a natural mood stabilizer and supports healthy levels of uh, neuroplasticity. Um, pretty cool. All right. So, when you do um, breath hold and breath retention, in Ayurvedic medicine, there's, there's what's called antar kumbhak, which is holding the breath on the inhale, and there's bahi kumbhak, which is holding the breath on the exhale. When you do holding the breath on the inhale, studies show, and it predicted in Ayurveda thousands of years ago, that, that would be an excitatory stimulus it would give you more oxygen because now you're breathing in a lot of oxygen and you're, you're sort of hyper-oxygenating your system, okay? And, and therefore, it would create a hyper-oxygenated state. So that would be for someone who's maybe really dull and depressed and lethargic and melancholy. That inhale on that side of the breath may be useful in that regard. And that's how it was traditionally prescribed. The Bahi Kumbak, which is the breath here on the exhale, when you breathe all the air out, you don't have any air. So what's building up is all the CO2 starts to build up and to build up and build up and build up and build up. And that, like I said, is a nerve sedative. And it, literally, in the studies, it's called a nerve tranquilizer. So talk about getting a calm effect from bring, having a, a breath hold on the exhale is that's why the Pahi Kumbak was to actually help people calm down and chill out. In our culture, that's probably more of what we need. And because we sit around and breathe little shallow breaths and we're not moving around and we breathe through our mouth and we walk around with our mouths open and our, we, we snore at night and we have sleep apnea, we desperately need more CO2. So we desperately need more, more, more of that. So holding the breath on the exhales, probably more where folks need to go because we want to build higher levels of tolerance of CO2 and we want to dial down the oxygen. So both are there, both have been written about, both have been recorded for a thousand years and both are well studied in terms of their effects. Pretty uh, interesting, uh, I think amazing, um, amazing research for that. Okay, so, um, 
I wrote an article about a breathing technique called Pratiloma, which is one of my favorite articles and one of my favorite breathing techniques that I want to share with you. And I want you to, there's two articles that I wrote about, one called, um, one called uh, um, Strengthen Your Lungs Now, Pratiloma, and the other one is called um, Breathe Away Your Heartburn. So it turns out that our diaphragm, which is like the major breathing muscle, right? We, gotta, we can't talk about pranayama and breathing mechanics without talking about your diaphragm. Turns out that the, that the diaphragm is the most important breathing muscle. It crosses, goes right underneath your rib cage. It goes across your whole body. And when you breathe in, it contracts and it pulls the air down like a piston into the lower lobes of your lungs. The receptors in the lower lobes of your lungs are parasympathetic in nature, and they tell you to calm down, relax, rest, and digest. Okay, if you don't have full diaphragmatic contraction, you're not going to pull the air down there. You're not going to get the full dose of parasympathetic activation, um, and you're going to stay breathing a lot in the upper lungs of your upper, upper lobes of your lungs, and you're going to breathe into a fight or flight receptor uh, world where that tells your body that life's an emergency. So if you saw a bear in the woods, I don't think you would respond like this. No, you would take an upper chest gasping breath, trigger fight or flight receptors, get up a tree, save your life, right? That's how it works. But when you breathe through your nose, like when you're nursing a baby, they breathe through the nose, it calms them down. In Germany, nursing is called stillen because it literally neurologically stills the baby. Um, so when you, when you breathe out through your nose um, and into your nose, you're activating, this, this, uh, you're activating the diaphragm to function in a complete fashion. Now, studies show that elite athletes, in one study showed that only half of the elite athletes had a fully contracting and relaxing diaphragm, which means that if elite athletes don't have a diaphragm that's fully contracting, then you and I probably don't either, which means that most of us have a diaphragm that's just gotten, like any muscle, if you don't use it, it's going to get tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Now, if that muscle in your diaphragm gets tighter, anything above it and anything below it is going to be compromised, which is your heart and your lungs, and all those parasympathetic receptors are going to be compromised to calm you down. And below it is all your digestive organs. And the studies on this have been so amazing. that, And, and the reason why there's studies on it is because Western medicine has a technique called inspiratory muscle training, IMT, which has been studied again and again and again. And it's used in every hospital on the planet for breathing difficulties from emphysema to bronchiectasis to asthma to heart failure to all types of you know, different types of respiratory and cardiovascular issues, they use this breathing technique. Um, and they give, you a, they give you these devices where you have to inhale as deeply as you can and see how much you can inhale, and they teach you to practice breathing, inhale, inhaling. Now, that's all through the mouth. Ayurveda, again, I think made an improvement on that, although those are fine. Because when you breathe through the mouth, it's going to be way more upper chest fulfilled. But when you breathe through the nose, the turbinates of the nose drive the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs, activate the calm receptors, the vagal response, the parasympathetic activation. That's why we have turbinates, little conches in our nose, to swirl the air so it drives all the way down into the lower part of the lungs. That's the, that's the engineering of our nose, part of it. So when... Um, so when, you, um, when people have a diaphragm that's not fully contracting and fully relaxing, um, you're going to have some issues staying calm. 
and you're going to find yourself breathing like a rabbit 26,000 times a day up here in the chest. And then you're going to find yourself having difficulty sleeping, snoring, sleep apnea, being anxious, worried, not settling down. And it affects what's below it, which is, well, your heart and your lungs, of course, but also your digestive organs. And studies show that inspiratory muscle training has been shown to help support all these breathing issues, all these cardiovascular issues, and also heartburn issues. Now, your diaphragm is a muscle, and your esophagus goes right through that muscle. Your vagus nerve is right next to the esophagus, and it goes through there. If the diaphragm is in a contracted state, or not relaxing and contracting, it's going to affect the, lower, the function of the lower esophageal sphincter, which allows the food to enter into your, into your stomach and not reflux back up. And study after study after study in the article, Breathe Away Your Heartburn, I read about, talk about all the science so that just this simple breathing technique can actually reverse heartburn and certain types of reflux and GERD where that lower esophageal sphincter has broken down and the food is now, and acid is refluxing through that sphincter. And I can't even tell you I have a technique I wrote an article about called stomach pulling, which is a technique to help massage, viscerally massage and pull down the stomach away from the diaphragm because the stomach can get pushed up against the diaphragm causing things like hiatal hernias and, and it can, you know, if the stomach is stuck to the diaphragm, the diaphragm just can't contract because it's stuck to a big old stomach, which makes it way more difficult for it to contract and relax fully. So you're not going to inspire fully or you're not going to expire fully. You're going to breathe really, really shallow which isn't good enough. You have, you know, you have free divers who can dive down, you know, you know, you know, hundreds of meters into the, into the ocean and hold their breath for 14 minutes. I mean, it's this crazy kind of stuff that we can develop and you don't, no one can say that you can't improve your breathing. You do it 26,000 times a day. You can improve this with practice. So the Pratyaloma breathing technique is a technique that forces your diaphragm to contract. Just like the, the, the machines they use, they, you, you breathe in fully, it forces your diaphragm to contract, these little inspiratory meters that they have in the hospitals. But Ayurveda said, what if we took our fingers and we partially closed our nostrils and breathe against resistance, you would find that that resistance would cause your diaphragm to fully contract. So let's just do a little experiment and we can do that. You can take your fingers in the classic way. You can take your, just your index and middle finger for now. But the classic way is to take your two um, with your right hand, your, your, mid, your uh, index finger and middle finger, and, and then take your thumb on one side and uh, pinky and, and ring finger on the other. And then partially close your nostrils and breathe in all the way. Try that again. So breathe, breathe out and then breathe in all the way to the very top. And when you breathe in all the way with partially closed nostrils, resistance to the inhalation, that's going to force your diaphragm to work extra hard. And that extra work is going to make your diaphragm fully contract. And you breathe out with ujjayi like that. Breathe in. Feel your diaphragm. This is what I want you to try to do right now is feel your diaphragm contract and feel your diaphragm relax. Um, but mostly at the very top of that inspiration, this is inspiration muscle training, inspiration is going to inspire you. It's going to, and that's going to definitely increase your oxygen intake, which is why you have to combine this when you're ready with a breath hold on the exhale to build your CO2 tolerance. 
So in the article, Strengthen Your Lungs Now, I teach you how to breathe this technique, do this technique. When you do it about 10 times, feel it to the very top, let it out through Ujjayi, breathe in, do that 10 times. On the final exhale, breathe all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way out, hold your breath. Now, the CO2 levels begin to rise. And this is where the magic happens. You get the calm, you get the, uh, you get the, the, the calming of your whole nervous system, and that's where you begin to build your CO2 tolerance. I do recommend you get an oximeter reading. An oximeter, buy it for 20 bucks, 25, 30 bucks, put it on your finger, and you watch your uh, oximeter levels drop, drop into what we call intermittent hypoxia. Your numbers will go from the high 90s to the low 90s, and each time you do that, I usually say do 10 uh, prontiloma inhalations, followed by a, a, a breath exhalation, breath retention on the exhale, then go do another round of 10 and do that five times. And at the end, after, at the each time when you're in the breath hold, you'll, you can look at your oximeter and you can watch that number go down from the high 90s to the low 90s to the high 80s to the low 80s and even into the 70s as you get better at this. And when you're in the 80s, you're in intermittent hypoxia. So you're getting the benefits of all the things that I mentioned, which is uh, you know, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Um, so, so I'm not going to teach all that because of the name of time, because I've written articles. Please go to those videos, watch those videos, learn that uh, very, very important um, technique. Other techniques that I want to talk about, um, uh, one technique called Kapalabhate, which means Kapala uh, means skull cleansing technique. So it's literally a breathing technique designed to clean out your skull. And this is a technique where you actually use your abdominal muscles, your secondary muscles of breathing, to force the air out of your lower lobes, your lungs. That forces your diaphragm to snap. It actually forces the air, you know, it actually forces the air into the head and it creates a whole host of benefits. So it's sort of like this breathing technique. You've seen people do it. Again, type in Kapalabhate. I'll link to that article. You can watch that video and I teach you how to do it, but it's where you breathe in like this. And when you do it, you can sort of feel your skull, the air moving into your skull, and they call it the skull cleansing technique. And the studies show on this Kapalabhata breathing technique that um, it increases emotional stability, increases strength handling, increases parasympathetic activity, increases oxygenation to the brain, increases weight loss in studies, and metabolic syndrome, another, another breathing technique shown to support healthy blood sugar and healthy fat metabolism, which is what metabolic syndrome is all about. Um, it increases the ability of the five lobes of the lungs of filling the dead space and therefore using areas of your lungs that you don't use or haven't used before, making you a much more efficient detoxifier of fat um, through the breathing process. You've probably heard by now that we breathe out a significant amount of our fat through our exhalation. That happens way, way better when you have bigger and higher levels of CO2 tolerance. And it's a natural visceral massage. Um, so it's a pay, way of getting rid of the kapha, the, 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 so move the cerebral spinal fluid in the brain, and it's a very, very powerful, powerful technique. It's similar to another breathing technique called bastrika, and then I've written an article about that, and I'll link to that as well. And bastrika is, a, is that bellows breath, that like that, but you're doing it through the nose, and it's more like, so it looks like this. So that's the, that's the Bastrika breathing technique, which is actually what I use for my one-minute meditation, and you can, you can read about that. 
And the studies on Bostrika show it initially increases some sympathetic activation because you're breathing vigorously, but followed by a long period of parasympathetic activation and neurological calm. Um, studies show that when people did it, 50 people did it for 12 weeks, there was an increased parasympathetic activation, decreased heart rate, decreased stress response, quicker uh, reaction time, both visually and audibly, increased aerobic fitness compared to running. So this breathing technique actually compared its efficiency of aerobic fitness to running and, 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 was, and actually outperformed it. It actually decreased mental distractions and it lowered blood pressure. And also, it actually increased gamma waves. And gamma waves are what we call spiritual waves. They're very rare and they're hard to produce and they're, uh, they're produced by Bastrika as well. Another breathing technique that I want to talk about is called Bromari, and that's the breathing technique where you actually will, you know, close your mouth and hum. And when you hum, you create a vibration. And these last two techniques, uh, Bromari and chanting or prayer, are techniques that create vibration. And, um, and, um, and, and perhaps the, the, the powerful transformation of erasing the, uh, the old impressions that we don't need anymore and rewriting them with new. If you think about the, the impressions that are written into the white matter of our brain, those old traumatic impressions, and they're written, if you could vibrate them, we could erase some of those old, uh, those old impressions. If you were to write your name in some sand and shake the sand, the, 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 the impressions would be gone. So Ayurveda used breathing techniques to create vibration and use vibration techniques, music, sound, and humming, and chanting to actually create that vibration to help change the vibration of the brain so we don't ride those old emotional troughs thinking the same thoughts. When I go home for the holidays, I become a four-year-old again, and therefore I must act in this way and re react and judge and complain and all these things that happen but we can raise our vibration and create a new vibration that allows us to ride over those impressions and then start functioning from who we truly are. And this technique, the first one's called Brahmari. Brahmari is a technique, in another article I've written, watch the video, and that's a technique where you hum, you can close your ears, this really makes it even more cool because you have the resonance in your head like profoundly amplified, and you close your ears and you hum, And that creates this powerful resonance. You'll try it, you'll see. And that creates a, a, a resonance in your head that's been shown to increase nitric oxide production by 15 times in the studies. So nitric oxide, again, is that Nobel Prize winning molecule in 1998 that won in chemistry for being the panacea molecule that cured everything. And when you breathe through your nose and hum, breathe through your nose, you make nitric oxide. Breathe through your nose and hum, you create 15 times more nitric oxide. Pretty crazy stuff. It also, um, so it's also designed to, to create that vibration to erase those recordings in the Tarpaka Kapha, the neuroplasticity. Been shown to increase neuroplasticity, increase gamma wave production, they call it the spiritual wave. Governs the perception of expanded consciousness, they call it the wave of universal love or altruism. So pretty cool stuff. And then finally, um, and I'm sure there's, I could go on and on and on about this because there's so much more to talk about. Um, but I am going to do a, a, a master class on breathing and go into this in way more detail. So please stay tuned on my website at lifespot.com for that. 
But chanting, when you think about chanting, uh, whether it be Gregorian chanting or Vedic chanting or humming or singing or, you know, choir singing, it's all designed to create a vibration. And from the Vedic perspective, it was designed to change the brainwave function. Studies show that when you chant, you produce alpha brainwaves, which we produce in our nose breathing exercise. It's been shown to increase, uh, uh, it's the meditative or prayer brainwave pattern. Chanting has also been shown to increase what's called very slow delta waves. They are the inhibitors um, of, or preventers of mental distraction. So these very slow delta waves keep you away from distractions of what's going on around you and allow you to really drop in to be completely centered in your own self-awareness. It's a pretty cool state to be in, to be alert and aware, but undistracted. A lot of times when we're alert, we're aware of everything around us. This is a technique, a waveform that's produced when chanting, and Brahmari does similar thing um, uh, when you're you know, being completely still and silent, but aware at the same time. Again, a concept of coexistence of co opposites, being totally still on, at the, on the, on, in your awareness, but totally aware at the same time. You know, it's like a hurricane. The bigger the eye, the bigger the calm, more powerful the winds, like a solar system. The bigger the sun, the bigger the solar system. And the sun sits still while everything spins around it. Pretty crazy Vedic concept. It also increases the, the uh, very slow delta wave activities that have been shown in chanting, increases neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the word we're looking for to mold or restructure neural pathways. That's what the definition of neuroplasticity is. That's exactly what we're trying to do with the old impressions of the brain. The delta waveform is considered to be an evolutionary state for restoration and repair of the brain and organs and organ systems. So pretty cool stuff. Chanting, singing, prayer, singing, go to a choir, go to church, sing your heart out, and, and, and you know, it's a spiritual experience. And it's something that uh, we should all, you know, be aware of. And I hope that this little lecture has given you some insight into what Ayurveda was about, what Pranayama was really about, and how we can all now take some steps towards um, you know, freeing ourselves from some of these old mental and emotional patterns, raising our vibration, our vibration above the trough, above the fray, so we don't get you know, kind of pulled into those old emotional states. Like uh, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we don't want to go there, we go high. And that's what these breathing techniques We'll let you do. We'll allow us to go high. All right. Thanks for listening. See you next month. Um, and we'll talk soon. I'm Dr. John Vuillard.